Good morning, Marcus. Oh, wait. Wrong podcast. Good Sorry. morning, John. Good morning, Scott. How's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. You like you like movies? I love movies. You like you like eschatological understanding of film from a leftist lens? It's the thing I dig the most. Nice. Yeah, we we be digging things like archaeologists or something like that. Um this is this is Popcorn Eschaton, a side quest of the zebras in America. I'm, I'm Scott Thorough, and we're joined here by John Arminio, and where we unpack movies from a, when possible, from a leftist and religious lens, when applicable, or even sometimes when it's not applicable. Uh, John and I, outside of recording, have been talking a lot about tackling westerns, which is a genre that I'm not very familiar with. I didn't I know a lot of people grew up with them or their parent their parents were really into westerns and my dad was into westerns but I think we watched Come Back Shane or is it just called Shane? Shane. Right? Shane. Yeah. I just spoiled the end of the movie, but I mean I think everybody knows what happens at the end of Shane. Mm. And I saw a couple Clint Eastwood movies. I just, it's just a, it's just a genre that, like horror or other certain genres, I just never super connected to. However, I acknowledge their ability to be both really fun or really substantive, or in some cases both. And I understand the Western as an idea. So there are movies that you might call a Western that are not necessarily cowboy movies. But so we decided to do some, you know, you were like, oh, let's I want to do some cowboy movies. And so we we did Terror in a Texas Town. And then we we're like, what are we going to pair it with? And I was doing some some Internet research trying to find, find you know, are there religious Western movies, movies that have like a, a outwardly religious bent? There must be. Because you could obviously, you could look at the economic nature and underlying economic parts of the Westerns without movies being overtly leftist, right? You can look at it. But I, was, I found a couple movies and I recommended, I looked at them and I sent them to you and you watched a bunch of them and you were like, no, this movie, Friendly Persuasion, I think, is the one we should talk to, which is, I don't, is it, so would you call Friendly Persuasion a Western? Um, I probably would not qualify it as a Western um, because it takes place in Indiana. Um, and I think the the setting of the Western is pretty subjective because, you know, there's this whole subgenre of Australian Westerns. There's... You know, modern day westerns like Hell or High Water or No Country for Old Men. Um, so, you know, like, you know, what is a horror movie? I think a western is a subjective term, but there just isn't enough uh, western iconography in Friendly Persuasion, but it certainly um, is of the time period. You know, it's taking place during the Civil War. And it deals with sort of the conflicts of communities in, you know, in 
relatively <laughs> the the Western United States. So I think it's definitely in the conversation, and I think aesthetically. It's very in keeping with westerns of the 1950s, and it's and it stars Gary Cooper, who's one of the most iconic western stars in Hollywood history. So I I think I think I'm comfortable including it in this conversation. So tell me a little bit about the western slash cowboy genre and why you like it. Um, you know, I've I I grew up with westerns. You know, watching them with my grandfather. Um, you know, like a lot of the things we love uh sometimes I, I do wish they did better in in a lot of ways um but I, I think it's also an extraordinarily complicated genre because there are you know sympathetic depictions of Native Americans going back to uh, the silent era uh there were even like Native American um creative voices in in the silent era, era westerns um you know someone like uh find uh david lambert on on twitter uh he's 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 the western expert to, to go to for for such stuff like this but i think uh depictions of the old west um during world war ii where it was sort of anathema to depict the united states um as bad um, except for the Oxbow incident, which um, I think is something we could tackle in the future. And then later, um, television westerns, which were just on for decades and, you know, were rerun over and over again. I think that sort of um, solidified the sort of na- national image of what a western is. So um, good guys versus bad guys, very, you know, black and white morality. Uh, pretty trite depictions of Native Americans. Uh, down home, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps values, like that That kind of stuff um, is is where, you know, the popular perception of the Western came from. And I think when we talk about revisionist Westerns of the late 60s and 70s, it's sort of a revisionist version of that so if you look at a a movie like McCabe and Mrs. Miller which is very self-consciously and almost ludicrously filthy and ugly mm-hmm. it's a reaction to what a television western looked like which was very clean and symmetrical because they had to set up the next shot in two minutes um, but you know and I think for me it's also a fascinating look at the politics of the time and what was going on in America's psyche because so many of these westerns are about, you know, communities of poor people, you know, uniting against um, like evil capitalists. And I don't think the viewers of a lot of these westerns, especially in the 50s, would have seen it in those terms and mm-hmm. I, I don't think people like Jimmy Stewart or, or John Wayne or John Ford um, would have certainly made this art in those terms. But, you know, how are these artists and these audiences seeing the sort of like hardworking, um, you know, small town values of these people, but not seeing the struggle that is sort of at the heart of why their lives are so hard. So it's sort of like they're not seeing the trees for the forest. And mm-hmm. I find that so fascinating. And I think, um, 
you know, the racial politics is also a real window into what America was trying to, to reckon with in the mid-20th century, you know, where you have these sympathetic depictions of, um, you know, both Native Americans and black people or showing your protagonist being sympathetic to them, but but then, on the other hand, depicting um, African Americans or Native Americans in incredibly stereotypical ways. Um, so it's, they're very willing to take a stand against racial violence, but certainly not advocate for anything like integration or self-determination. So very much carrying on the, the status quo um, of, you know, racial politics of the time. So I, I think, you know, it, it's just a fascinating genre and a fascinating time period to me. And I think that sort of cognitive dissonance is what is at the heart of, you know, the cinema of people like David Lynch or um, or John Sayles or, or, um, or even somebody like Todd Haynes. Um, so I, it, it's just a genre that is very... Uh, rich to me, and I think, especially with something like Terror in a Texas Town, you have artists who are very self-consciously um, combining the the Red Scare politics with their uh, with their art, and so that's what makes a movie like that especially interesting to me. Absolutely, and to to piggyback off of that, so the mo- the two movies that we're going to talk about today, Friendly Persuasion and Terror in the Te- Texas Town, both were co-written by people on the Hollywood blacklist. Yeah, so especially Terror in a Texas Town, you know, that was co-written by Dalton Trumbo, who's probably, like, the most famous person on the Hollywood blacklist. But it was also co-written by Nedrick Young, who plays the antagonist in the film Johnny Crail. And Nedrick Young was instrumental in getting the director, Joseph H. Lewis, to direct the film. And Joseph H. Lewis's... Uh, thinking was, well, I'm at retirement age. I'll make this leftist film because I have, I I can afford to burn my bridges. So let's stick it to them. And so I I, I really enjoy that sort of uh, communal response to uh, the Hollywood blacklist. And and for those might who might not be familiar, the Hollywood blacklist was literally a list of people who were not able to work or were not supposed to work in Hollywood if they were deemed to have any sort of connection to communism, socialism, Russia during the early parts of the Cold War. It's it's an episode unto itself. It was it's a witch hunt. Uh the I think, you know, the the play Crucible is about it in in many ways. I think no it literally is. I I haven't seen it in quite some time, but Yeah. And and the star of Terror in a Texas Town, Sterling Hayden, he's somebody who did name names, but then would feel guilty about it for the rest of his life, and it would be a, sort of a trigger for his alcoholism, which would end up killing him. So it, it it was something that caused a lot of grief and a lot of like actual pain for a, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so... Let's let's talk a little bit about Terror in a Texas Town. Yeah. So, t- what? Tell me about Terror in a Texas Town. And uh, Terror in the Texas Town is available on Tubi, which at this point should be sponsoring this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, Terror in a Texas Town has one of my favorite opening images uh, oh, in, so good. Film, in film history. It's Sterling Hayden, who's, you know, sort of an oak tree of a man walking down Main Street carrying a whaling harpoon. And it's so incongruous, you know, to see a whaling harpoon in Texas, but it's just so incredible. And then the film sort of flashes back to how he got there. But it's about um, this land baron named McNeil who is sort of making good on a on a purchase of land that he made years ago. But in that time, there are now settlers on that land who purchased the land themselves from squatters. So it's a very sort of complicated uh, land and property rights situation that was uh, very characteristic of, you know, going west. Uh, a lot of people purchased or stole land that didn't belong to them. Yeah. And it, w- it wasn't just like white people stealing land from Native Americans and Mexicans. It was a repeated process of that happening over and over again. Um, and so you have these... Um, Poor farmers, many of whom were immigrants who were trying to scrape by a living, farming in Texas, which is a very hard life. But unbeknownst to them, um, oil, uh, McNeil knows there's oil there, but the farmers soon also discover it. And he um, ends up using, uh, McNeil ends up using this hired gunman named Johnny Crail to intimidate, terrorize, and murder uh, the farmers until they agree to leave. And it's the conflict of, well, these farmers, you know, unionize uh, in order to oppose McNeil and Crail or where, or, or will they cave? And um, Sterling Hayden's character, his father is murdered just as he is arriving to sort of take over his, his uh, father's farm. And it's um, a story of will will these farmers be able to sort of defeat the forces of uh, Johnny Crail and and McNeil? And I'm really taken with Johnny Crail's portrayal of this gunman because it's sort of like an acknowledged um, performance of the character. So he's literally crippled. Um, he has he lost his hand in a shootout, and so he's sort of taken on the guise of like a mythical bad man of the West. Like he dresses in all black, he wears black gloves, he wears a black hat, he wears two guns, even though it's impossible for him to use two guns. And so he's like broadcasting how badass he wants to be seen as, but he's really broadcasting how insecure he is. And that certainly makes him very dangerous, but it makes, like, everything he does have just another layer of unpredictability and cruelty to it. And it's it's very compelling to watch. And, it, yeah, it's it's a really beautiful movie. It's well shot. It's, it's, I found the pacing to be just, like, a nice, easy to... You know, so the movie's not too long. It's easy to digest. It's a West. It, it certainly feels like a Western, but definitely foregoes a lot of the tropes that I know Westerns as. And even even the plot style of starting the movie with the showdown and like, how did I get here? 
that doesn't seem like something that shows up in westerns a lot. My understanding of western movies, at least earlier western films, as you said earlier, tend to have a more straightforward narrative style, straightforward black and white. You know, there's good guys, there's bad guys. The bad guys often have to do with, you know, keeping a town asunder and people shoot out. They shoot each other if they don't like each other. And it's sort of like accepted that, you know, you you can have a shootout if you, if things are going poorly. So this movie about a guy who comes back to see his dad to find out that his dad's been murdered. There's this land baron trying to get all the land and he's got to figure out how he can do right and do righteous. It's just, yeah, it's really, it's really subverting what I expect of the genre. Um, I'm very glad to hear that. And, you know, I've, you know, it it is a movie where um, a a person of color is killed to sort of trigger uh, the heroic quest of the the white main character. Uh, But I was really taken by the portrayal of the Murata family, um, especially uh, Victor Milan, who plays Jose Murata. Um, he would go on to be a, a theater professor and, and appear in a, a ton of films. Um, so, I, I, you know, I guess we're getting into spoiler territory for a film made in the 50s. Um, but there is a really pivotal scene where Crail wants him to kneel um, and Jose does not, and because he knows he's going to get killed anyway. Um, and that sort of breaks Crail psychologically, you know, because his, um, his whole worldview is, is, or his whole purpose in life is based on the fact of, that he can instill fear in people, and when he cannot, you know, strike fear into the hearts of these farmers anymore, um, he's sort of cast adrift and I think that that theme of you know courage in the face of oppression and you know sticking together is is what you know created this film in the in the first place but also is at the heart of a lot of the very brutal struggles that actually occurred in in the old west so like you know you mentioned Shane earlier uh, that film was really inspired by the Johnson County War, which was an an incident of capitalism at its like most brutal, where um, cattle ranchers would force um, like base, cattle barons would try to force small ranchers off of their land by um, hiring mercenaries to murder lo- local law enforcement by um, trumping up charges for uh, the small landowners saying that they were cattle rustlers and then summarily hanging them and taking over their land. Uh, that kind of, you know, and that was just common practice, I guess, um, in the late 19th century. And so, you know, those were the kind of stakes that you were going up against if you were sitting up a homestead west of the Mississippi. Like, you were 
not not only risking your life getting there, but knowing that at some point in the next 20 years, some rich guy could hire a murderer to kill you, and he could just as well kill the sheriff and put his own like candidate for sheriff in his place. So it's it's this constant struggle to exist. And I think in America we sort of romanticize that, and that's part of why Westerns were the dominant force in cinema for so long, but it, it could not have been a psychologically or physically healthy existence. Yeah, and the truth is this sort of story of taking land uh, is pretty much a a bad a, a villain in so many stories. Yeah. And is you know, yeah, in in the westerns it's this this rich guy will take over and take your land and there's nothing you can do about it and if the law tries to do something they'll create their new their own law. But this also happens with eminent domain to this day. Yeah. Where where there there are times where the government can take people's land and give substandard amounts of money for it or sometimes find a way to get out of giving money. And this is done by the government, but it's also done by the government in the name of capitalistic empires, you know, sports stadiums, building projects. And then they'll do that under the guise of, oh, well, there's going to be affordable housing. But affordable housing is an ambiguous term because affordable is a meaningless word because affordable to you and I is not affordable to uh, people who have different means. You know, you and I are, I'd say, pretty solidly working class. And so what's affordable to me could be X dollars, but that might be way above people's means if they're, if they're under working class. And the fact that there are people that are under the working class, that, that there, we live in a world where you can work two jobs and still not to be, be able to, to do more than pay your rent. We're, we're paying, we're, we're, so many people work 50 hours a week just to be just their head above water. Just, just one, one bad move away from not having land, not having access, not having resources. Now that if you're listening later that we are in 2023 and the COVID pandemic has been announced no longer an emergency. So a lot of laws that, that are in place to protect people are changing. The, the numbers of the, the amount that people get for food stamps is lowering. The amount that people that get for energy assistance is lowering. So yeah, the, the, the big bad wolf of, of haves and have nots, we sort of get into it. We, it might be easy to enjoy coming from the 1800s because you're like, oh, it's far away from my life that it doesn't feel like what's actually happening to me. Yeah, I, I think what is essential about film, um, you know, as an art form, is that it can tackle those issues that are uncommercial um, when presented literally. And also, you know, unappetizing when presented literally. And, and we can approach that through, you know, 
metaphor and allegory, and you know that's not anything new, but that's you know certainly the appeal of of Star Trek and and the appeal of of a lot of these westerns. Um, and you know, as much as I am buoyed by a movie like Terror in a Texas Town, you know, much more closely aligned with my own personal politics than somebody like John Ford. Um, I also think it behooves us to experience art that is not in line with our politics. You know, you know, people who voted for Trump are also suffering. And well, like, I'm in, infuriated by that, but I, I also know that they're, you know, human beings too, and, and there are people who I would not get along with who lived in the Old West that suffered greatly. And I, I think what you know, movies can do, um, especially when, you know, created by, you know, great artists, is that it, it it can teach us empathy for people that are different from us, and and I think you know when when we get to friendly persuasion, um, I think that's sort of at the heart of Quaker philo- the Quaker philosophy of pacifism. Absolutely. And what I think Terror in a Texas Town does really well is, again, it gives you an entertaining movie while also sprinkling in concepts. So, again, you might just watch it and just be like, oh, this is a good movie. And that's great. When art is just great, we love that. But when when you peel back the layers and find other nutrients... I think you can really make something transcendent. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, you mentioned one of their works earlier, but uh, the writer-director Taylor Sheridan, mm-hmm. he's pretty much made a career of bringing back the Western, right? Yeah. Uh, Hell or High Water, uh, Wind River, that there's, he has like several TV shows, Yellowstone, and Yellowstone has a bunch of spinoffs, and they're all basically westerns, am I right? Yes, uh, you know, Yellowstone takes place now, uh, and so I think purists would certainly quibble with that being a western. But yeah, it's very clearly he's tapping into sort of a, a nostalgia for for the western, and and has made a, a TV empire out of it for sure. So you feel, but we we agree that. No Country for Old Men is a Western. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm somebody who very is very liberal with attaching genre labels, so uh, I would call horror, um, science fiction, um, westerns, and heavy metal. I'm I'm very liberal with, as a general rule, applying those labels to to specific pieces of art, whereas. Um, purists would would quibble with that. But yeah, I would call Yellowstone a Western for sure. So a purist would say that Western has to ha- has to go go down in a certain time period yeah. in a certain part of America. Yes. Whereas I say, well, you know, um, the proposition is an Australian Western. I would certainly call that that, that a Western, that definitely. Right, and, and we've, we've... Far away. And we've talked out off off record and this has been talked about many times that samurai movies and western movies not only are very similar they often 
were remakes of each other. Mm-hmm. And then there, then I I had you check out the 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 black cinema film Bucktown, which was which was a I forget whether it was a remake of a of a western or it was a western remake of a samurai movie or samurai movie western. But would you consider samurai films western like? Uh, I would say definitely. Um, it certainly depends on the western. Like I think. A samurai movie like Harakiri is not like a western at all, but you know, Seven Samurai and Yojimbo are certainly westerns um, or western adjacent, you know, because they've been remade and also inspired by western novels. And then you know, the the Sidney Poitier movie Buck and the Preacher is a combination of um, black exploitation and and the old west like it, it's a literal western but there are certainly black exploitation elements with within it yeah i mean that's a whole genre yeah the subgenre genres are always very interesting yeah definitely and to before we go into friendly persuasion yeah i think there's something really striking about a movie starting with a dude about to have a gunfight with a harpoon yeah and I also just like the because I'm you know one of my favorite uh, works of art of all time is Moby Dick and so anything that has to do with whaling I'm all like hmm I'm interested um, and I also find it fascinating that the plot is triggered by this discovery of oil which will very soon supplant whaling as an industry and, and so to have your central hero carrying a harpoon around i, I think um it, it's, it's just an interesting device is all yes and it, i think it's interesting because people might not appreciate or realize that one of america's biggest industries was whaling mm-hmm. you you can go to to old there there's there are towns in new england and upstate new york that might not be big towns now but still have double porches for the red light districts and old bars and signs connoting that there were one time like this, these towns were gigantic in the whaling industry because whales were used for oil and blubber and all this stuff and mostly not needed anymore. It, they, it still happens, but it's not an industry like cotton or yeah. oil or corn. Whereas I think there will be a time where there will be a generation where where people won't understand the significance of tobacco as yeah, one of the I, major crops. Yeah. And um, I hope we'll get to that place with oil someday. <laughs> it'll it'll take a lot. It'll take a lot. You yeah. know, we're we are still willing to we're still willing to choose money over people in so many instances and you know if you're listening around now you know recently there's this all this talk about you know stopping a rail or a rail a railroad strike for better conditions and and safer living and that was stopped but the government was like you are not going to strike you're going to accept this deal and it wasn't a very good deal and then and, and recently uh a train in palestine ohio just like, you know, exploded with lots of poison, mist yep. fumes. 
and that it was something that was to- that could have totally been avoidable if if certain changes had been made and those changes were chosen not to be made because of bottom line issues mm-hmm. and as long as we choose bottom line over the safety of people it's going to be very hard to change how things are done yeah and it's and it's going to be difficult and i, I certainly wish that you know unions had uh, more political power um, in America, at least when compared to to corporations and yeah, capitalist minded politicians, and and I think the consequence is the loss of human life, and at the very least, the loss of livable space in the world. Yeah. Not only because of climate change, but because of chemical explosions. And we we have the ability to deal with these things, and and we don't, and. And, you know, we were talking about earlier about Trump supporters and conservatives. They're being just as affected by these by these means. And, and in some ways, even worse, because a lot of a lot of people from certain parts of America where you you work in in factories or work in places of industry. You're taught that union equals socialism, socialism equals evil. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are getting screwed over. And if there were unions in place and there were people protecting them, they there there would be more protection, especially as work gets more and more automated. Yeah. And, you know, like we've seen in a movie we've covered in the past, Blue Collar, unions are not immune from their own specific types of corruption. But just because a system isn't perfect that doesn't mean we should avoid it because the system we have right now is less perfect so we have to actually try something you know to improve the lives of human beings um and so yeah yes yeah just because i think that unions are great doesn't mean that that means like just because i like something doesn't mean it's infallible like any anything has the ability to be corrupt and bad mm-hmm. you know but so yeah so let's let's um let's talk about this next movie friendly persuasion yeah so um friendly persuasion was a movie that i had like heard of um but when you sent it to me it was like oh Holy shit, that's right. Um, and, you know, so it's it's about a Quaker family living in Indiana who are sort of at the focal point of the Civil War. And it's taking place in 1862, so still pretty early in the Civil War. Uh, the Union is generally getting their butt kicked. Um, and it the movie is about the conflict between the pacifists beliefs and philosophy and lifestyle of the Quakers and what that means when faced with an existential threat like the Confederacy who are fighting to keep people enslaved and are and especially this band of raiders who are roaming the countryside um, taking everything they can from 
farmers and towns and and destroy and you know leaving destruction in, in their wake and you know it um it like i was telling you this is a a movie in the 50s that sort of exalts american small town values and there's a lot of technicolor smolts in it but there are some scenes that really gets at the heart of the spiritual conflict of pacifism of mm-hmm. like are you going to let someone else die to save you and you not do anything to defend yourself or defend your, your town or your home or your family and and how facing certain death and the death of your and the death of your family can change your philosophy at the, at the drop of a hat um, and I think those are extraordinarily complicated and difficult questions for a movie like this to to tackle. And I I really have to you know admire it, admire a movie made at this time period w- with this look, you know, by a legendary filmmaker William Wyler, uh, to make their protagonists pacifists. You know, so by its very nature, there's not going to be a satisfying, you know, showdown. Um, th- there no. is there is a battle, but the battle is the important battle is within these characters like okay you know defend yourself but can you kill to keep yourself alive that is against what you know what jesus taught certainly and it is against what we believe um you know gary cooper says like if if there's a sword in your heart you must pull it out and use it but there is no sword in my heart i i I hate no man, and you know I think that's you know an incredibly powerful you know topic to tackle, and and I think like for me, um, you know William Wyler has like he had a decades long career before World War Two and after, and he he tackled so many genres, but the key film in his filmography for me is uh, the best years of our lives. And uh, to me, that's an extraordinary movie. Um, it was made in 1946. And it's about a group of World War II soldiers just trying to fucking deal with coming home and experience and like handling their PTSD and how their lives have changed, how they, they can't come back to the lies that they once led for both physical and emotional reasons. Um, and it's got some extraordinary performances. Um, the only time in Hollywood history where the same actor won two Oscars for the same part um, because they actually had a, an amputee, a, a real World War II veteran amputee, um, sort of play himself. And so they created a special award for him and he won Best Supporting Actor. Um, but it's just such a remarkable display of empathy uh, on everyone on screen and, and behind the camera that it's it's sort of... So anytime I see a William Wyler movie, that's a movie I'm like, okay, this guy who made Best Year for, Years of Our Lives is the behind the camera for, for this film. And that, that's sort of my lens for watching anything that he's done. And... Also, I might say that Friendly Persuasion, I thought was a pretty good movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's got it, perhaps the most unexpected use of professional wrestling in cinema history. It really does. It's because what it does, what it does, and I think what it what explains like 
the really strange thing that is war, specifically the civil wars, is it's a slice of life film. It's a historical film. It, it starts with this family just being a family and ends with this family just being a family. But in between, they are confronted with the civil war and what to do with that. And the Quaker faith is a, is a Christian faith that believes in pacifism, that believes in the divine in everybody, uh, always been righteous, uh, righteous objectors. They won't fight in wars. They won't, they, they were always, they were mostly against slavery. They're just, they, they take their own thing. And, and it's, it's about, yeah, what do you do when, when war comes to your door and your family could die, people could die, you could die if you're not willing to, your pacifism can actually cause others to die. The Civil War is really the only time Quakers have had to face like a real existential um, enemy that challenges their pacifism. Um, because just by dint of being in America, we're away uh, from most conflicts. Um, but, you know, there are many cases of, you know, Quakers being arrested, being charged for refusing to fight. Um, and th there were cases where, like, Lincoln had to personally intervene to, to keep people from being jailed in, during the Civil War. And, you know, it wasn't until the 20th century that they were, like, officially allowed to be conscientious, conscientious objectors. Uh, um, but it's a, an, inc an incredibly deeply felt and, like, thought-out spiritual philosophy. And, um, you know, I just really by coincidence, um, just through my own reading, I discovered this essay called Truth to Power uh, written in... 1955 uh, by the Quakers. There's, there's no specific author given, but it's it's about okay, if there's another world war, it could exterminate all human life on this planet. You know, the Soviets and the Americans have the H-bomb. It is time to seriously consider a pacifist philosophy in dealing with international conflict because any war could lead to the end of the world. It, it talks about how, okay, so we defeated fascism in World War II. We, the, that was the war that everybody was, we believe we're on the right side of, but we're closer to Armageddon now, 10 years later, than we ever have been before. So what really has militarism brought us? And, you know, it, it talks about how making moral compromises uh, for military strength will only lead to more greater and greater moral compromises when you have vilified other human beings as the ultimate evil. You'll take on a, by any means necessary attitude, um, commit illegal acts uh, just to defeat your enemy, and that is not how to exist in a world where we're all cr created, you know, in the image of God. And it's it's a pretty remarkable document, um, even on practical terms. Like it was written seven years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it's it says, you know, 
Americans have fleets of bombers in West Germany and Japan, how would Americans react if there were suddenly uh, Soviet military bases in the Western Hemisphere? Wouldn't that freak us out? And lo and behold, it really did. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I've, I just found the way that Friendly Persuasion depicted... Um, that spiritual philosophy in microcosm in one family, just very, very engrossing um, and just very, you know, you know, very entertaining, certainly, and, and just um, very compelling. Yeah, and it was, it was, it was able to really get the, the spiritual in, yes. in trying, in, in war in a way that I thought was meaningful. Cause you know, there's like Hacksaw Ridge, right? With that mm-hmm. Mel Gibson movie where Andrew Garfield plays a pacifist medic. And it's just such a Mel Gibson movie. Yeah. Who And Mel Gibson, in my opinion, fetishizes violence and his complicated Catholicism, I think makes for, Movies that have a lot of unnecessary violence and guilt in them. He's not a talentless filmmaker, but he's very, he's a little, he's, he's, he's very violent and, and it's very interesting that he has a career still after some of the things he's done and said. Yeah, it's, uh, it's bonkers. Um, (laughs) and you know, he's somebody whose films and acting work I greatly admired when I was growing up. Uh, and and so his the revelations of, of his true self, I guess, uh, make me sort of like when that when you you know when somebody who you looked up to when you were eight turns out to be a a bigot and a psycho, you know you, you sort of take that personally and very bitterly. Absolutely, and I just you know and. As far as the politics of the film, I mean, war. I mean, war is politics, mm-hmm. and and there's a lot of complexities into the Civil War about politics and spirituality and things of that nature. You know. Yeah. Um. If if I could quote um from the Truth to Power essay for for a second here, please. It's talking about the faith of pacifism. Um, to act on such a faith, the politics of eternity demand of us first repentance. As individuals and as a nation, we must literally turn about. We must turn from our self-righteousness and arrogance and confess that we do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. We must turn from the substitution of material for spiritual values. We must turn not only from our use of mass violence, but from what is worse, our readiness to use violence whenever it suits our purpose, regardless of the pain it inflicts on others. We must turn about. Fantastic. I, th- I, in fact, I think that's a pretty good point to, to sort of wrap up on, sure. um, and and perhaps we'll link to this this piece on the description of the show. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? Thank you for taking this uh, dive into the old west with me. I, I appreciate it, especially considering it hasn't been a genre you've enjoyed as much in the past. Um, and yeah, I would just encourage people out there to explore 
the Western genre, there's certainly crazy little corners um, of, of the Old West, uh, you know, both from America and certainly from Europe, where their views on religion are out there. Uh, and perhaps we can tackle those in the future. Um, but yeah, the, the Western genre is, is one dark and deep. Yes. And I think we'll we'll revisit the genre later in the show. I because I'm I'm open to it, especially when people are offering me things that cater to my likes, and then eventually I'll be willing to, you know, veer out myself and find other things. I mean, I did find us friendly persuasion, but it really isn't a western. It's a it's a his, it's a historical epic. Yeah, yeah. All right, my friend. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you for this conversation. Yes, of course.